Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome to 2024 and to the History of England, episode 393, We Saw No Light. And welcome back to war, violence, death, destruction and chaos. Enough of all that peace and love to all mankind kind of tripe. Last time, we heard about how Parliament and King managed to find some friends. True, we then heard about the crashing, burning and entoastment of Hamilton's strategy for the King of Scotland, but look, he had Antrim and Montrose up his sleeves instead. So, Hamilton was slung in the chokey, and Charles turned to the Irish. The cessation with the Irish Confederate Association was signed after the Papal Party had a run-in with a clonus cyclone, and in line with the cessation, soldiers from the English army in Ireland started to return through Chester, maybe to the tune of 9,000 through the year. However, that number of 9,000 would be dwarfed, by Harry Vane's deal on behalf of Parliament with Argyle and the Covenanters in Scotland. The price of a Scottish army was the Solemn League and Covenant, an oath for a uniform Presbyterian Kirk across all of the three kingdoms, to preserve the religion of the Kirk in Scotland and to reform the churches of England and Ireland. Work had already started anyway in England at Westminster to reform the English church. The Scots would now be admitted to the Westminster Assembly to lend a helping hand. Then we heard about the role of Charles's other die for 1643, Newcastle in the north. But Hull and the Fairfaxes had held out. Manchester was then given command of a newly raised army of the Eastern Association and by the time we said goodbye to Pym in December 1643, the king's dominant position that he'd had in the middle of the year had been stifled. 
It still had a good year on balance since 1643, but there had been no knockout blow. There was no cigar. Well, in January 1644, Edward Hyde saw the culmination of his plan to present Charles once more as father of his kingdom, ruling together with lords and commons, by calling a parliament at Oxford. And there, in January, a creditable number, maybe 150 MPs and lords, assembled in the crowded and now heavily fortified city of Oxford. They all met in Christchurch Hall. Charles had taken some persuading, it had to be said, to call this parliament, and funnily enough, he would later regret it, and he'd come to call it a mongrel parliament. Henrietta Maria and her advisers were again it too. They thought that this parliament would do nothing but try to force Charles to make peace. So she urged Charles that if he was going to whistle the mongrel into the Christchurch kennel, the first thing they should do is declare the Westminster Parliament dissolved and illeg illegitimate. But it was the constitutional royalist Hyde and his allies on the council that won the day against the Queen's more swordsmanlike approach. This was Charles's big chance to show what a reasonable, moderate, all-round great guy he really was, and how thoroughly constitutional you can see. He would not ride roughshod over the new right of the Commons in Westminster to dissolve itself, because he was above that kind of thing. Nonetheless, the very existence of the Oxford Parliament would surely help undercut the legitimacy of the rebels in London, which was helped by the fact that the Parliament in London now only had about 200 actual MPs sitting and fewer lords than were at Oxford. Now, they would replenish numbers through recruiter elections, but for the moment, you could see the bare threads in the carpet of representation. Plus, look, here at last in Oxford was the Parlement à saint -Maud Charles had been looking for since 1625, his kind of parliament. A bunch of loyalists, all in one place, eager to promote his cause. Now, he'd had to raise an army and start a civil war to get one, but now he's here, so a bit of basking was in order. And it was the most successful parliament he ever had, it has to be said. He was able to be gracious, because there was no one asking difficult questions and tweaking his tail. The parliament voted subsidies loyally. They condemned the invasion of the Scots, encouraged by that treasonous parliament. They were able to present themselves as the party of the ancient constitution of peace, social order, absolutely punching that bruise of the royal message through the civil wars. As the Parliament was prorogued and sent home in April to prepare for civil war, it had represented the triumph of Hyde's influence in the Privy Council over the Queen and her swordsman advisers like Henry German. For Henrietta Maria, meanwhile, it was all increasingly frustrating, and she took out her frustrations in the sport of royalty. I speak not of horse racing, but of plotting. She encouraged two plots. One was devised by that fertile nursery of daft ideas, George Digby, arranging for the betrayal of the parliamentarian fortress at Aylesbury. Another was the brainchild of the Duchess of Buckingham, and that involved a conspiracy with a metallurgist, actually. A particularly disreputable profession, I've always thought. My mother taught me never to trust a metallurgist. Lord Brooke was the metallurgist in question, and he was to take a plan to influence movers and shakers on the London Council and carry out some driving of wedges between them and Parliament. Of course, both plots were betrayed, crashed and burned. 
the duplicity of the left hand did no end of harm to the reasonable, trustworthy image the right hand of Charles was trying to present. Didn't help that Brooke was a Catholic metallurgist, and the parliamentarian propaganda machine had a field day with that one, with, you guessed it, popish plots. Charles looked insincere again. There was another bun in Henrietta Maria's oven of plotting, which now began to rise. This was the Antrim bun. You might remember the plot discussed between him and her at Bridlington while the musket shot whistled around their ears. To launch an invasion of Scotland from Antrim's Madonnell Estates in Ulster, to bring fire and to bring sword to the Macdonald's hereditary enemies, the Campbells. Did I say that? Of course, what I meant was to bring fire and sword to the king's enemies, the Covenanters. Silly me, slip of the tongue. The news had got out while Charles was supposed to be talking peace in Scotland, the result being the solemn league and covenant with the English Parliament, Hamilton thrown in jail by the king for his failure, all of his own, nothing to do with the king. Remember all that? Well, Antrim was out of jail now, and he was back in Oxford with the Queen, and the Earl of Montrose had turned up too. Hey, remember that dough-brained scheme for an invasion bun we had? Why don't we give that a kneading again and see if it rises? Now look, Charles is out of options in Scotland, and so Montrose and Antrim's plans looked jolly good. I mean, they were the only game in town anyway, and Montrose was young, good-looking, energetic and martial, and Antrim was rich, so why not? Anyway, it was free. All Charles had to do was promote Montrose to Marquis, make him Lieutenant General of Scotland, open the doors of the lab, and release the bacillus into the wild and see if it was contagious. So, that's what he did. Montrose headed immediately north, his plan to raise an army in southwest Scotland, together with the son of the Earls of Huntley, Lord Aboyne. Now look, Huntley is important, because they are famously Catholic and famously royalist up in the northeast near Aberdeen. So, Montrose and Aboyne would raise an army in Cumbria, raise even more fellows in Galloway, march through Scotland doing the fire and sword thing as you do, join up with their friends in the north, as simple as A, B, C. Well, by April, Montrose had tried that, and by May, he was back in England without a bean, talking to Prince Rupert about what he could do next. He had forgotten that you cannot move in southwest Scotland without treading on a radical Presbyterian foot. The area is literally its homeland, its beating heart. But, everyone, what's this place? Third time lucky. Montrose is not the kind of man to seek no for an answer, and he will find the right man in Alistair McCullough. He will find him, though, in another episode. Before we go over to London, there is one more bun we need to mention. Henrietta Maria tended to suffer from difficult pregnancies, and in early 1644 she was pregnant again, and she was again suffering. At the start of the campaigning season, it looked as though Waller and Essex were both targeting Oxford specifically, and that was just all too much for her. She needed to find a place of safety. So, she left Oxford, to Charles's evident distress, he sent despairing letters to her elderly physician in London to get all the way to Bath to go and join her. May Hearn, for the love of me, go to my wife, Charles Rex. He accompanied Henrietta Maria as far as Abingdon, a town in Oxford where, on the bun theme, they have an old tradition of throwing locally made buns at people from the town hall on royal occasions. Just so you know, if you're ever in the area. Anyway, Henrietta Maria continued on to Bath 
and then further on down into the southwest and safety to Exeter to prepare for and give birth in a bit of peace and quiet. Her departure from court at Oxford robbed the swordsmen in the King's Council of their greatest ally. Abingdon was also the last time and place, incidentally, where Henrietta and Charles would ever meet. Back in Westminster then, it was all change, and people struggled to sit in their new seats because there was a big, pim-shaped hole in the body politic. There was no one with quite the same gravitas that he had held. He was the band which held the rods of the Fasques together, and he was gone. Meanwhile, there were new players in the form of the Scots, here to take up their role in government of both kingdoms, as per the Solemn League and Covenant. And there was a sort of turf war to sort out. In the coming military season, decisions needed to be taken about who, with what, and where. And it wasn't simple. The three generals, Waller, Essex and Manchester, were in prickly pearland, and getting it wrong could result in raw paws. And until the new campaigning season opened, the military was back in the house itself, so MPs like Manchester, Waller, Cromwell were for a short time back on the benches, and they would make themselves heard. It was Oliver Sinjan, the Junto's lawyer, who would come closest to being Pym's replacement. Now look, Sinjan was no barrel of laughs, rarely the guy to get the party started, but he was widely respected. He'd earned the respect of all in that central role he'd played in the revolution so far. He had a mind like a bacon slicer. More importantly now was the breadth of his opinions. Probably a traditional Calvinist, he spoke also the language of independency, and he was on good terms with what was emerging as the war party, but he also remained a friend to the more conservative Essex and his allies on the peace party side. So Sinjin was able to bridge different opinions. The range of those opinions were finely balanced in the new institution of state which Lord Say and Seal organised, replacing the Committee of Safety, now including the four Scottish commissioners. The Committee of Both Kingdoms came into being. This committee would now direct the war. Now look, if Parliament had been an oyster, then there was grit in it. And the grit would get grittier, and we're not quite sure what the pearls were, to be honest. Politically, we have a peace party and we have a war party. We have a war party and we have a peace party. The leading figure in the peace party was Essex, along with Manchester and folks like Denzel Hollis. You might notice that two of the three generals I mentioned are in the peace party, and this could seem to someone something of a red flag in a military sense, leading potentially to a white flag. To be fair, Essex and his ilk had no desire to give up. But they were looking for peace and compromise and a way out at every single opportunity. And there is no doubt that people were noticing a certain lack of, shall we say, panache, daring do, chutzpah in the prosecution of the war. There was therefore a small but developing movement in some quarters to remove Essex, and he felt that keenly and he felt the loss of influence that setting up the Committee of Both Kingdoms had represented for him personally. Denzel Hollis, meanwhile, had been at the forefront also of the revolution, and had been offered military command. But at Brentford, in 1642, when Rupert had attacked out of the fog and wiped out two-thirds of Hollis's regiment, Dews wrote in his diary that Hollis 
was much cooled in his fierceness by the great slaughter made in his regiment at Brentford. Hollis declined the military role offered to him, and from that moment on his messages were much less about the king, and they were much more about the king's evil counsellors, searching and hoping for a compromise. Others on the Committee of Both Kingdoms were firmly of the view that since we're in this war, the thing to do is focus on winning it. Compromise and agreement must come, but they can come from a position of strength, because frankly, this king had not shown himself open to reason and compromise. No one except Henry Martin is even thinking there's any future without a king. But look, let's just get these things done. JDI, messing and dithering, will just make it all more painful. Harry Vane, Arthur Hazelrig, Cromwell, they're all on the Committee of Both Kingdoms, and they're all for getting on with this. We we shall call them the War Party. It tells us something about Cromwell's character that he deals with this head-on. His star was definitely rising from a military point of view. When his boss Manchester was made General of the Eastern Association Army, Parliament's biggest army now of 15,000, Cromwell was duly promoted to be his second-in-command, a lieutenant-general of horse. But before he returned to his new enhanced post and regiment in the field, Cromwell launched a furious attack on the military competence of Lord Willoughby in the field the previous year. For Cromwell, this thing, this war, must be prosecuted with all energy and ability. There was no room for shillying, nor... While we're on it, was there any room for shallying? Willoughby, meanwhile, was livid. There was upset tears, flounces. Willoughby even challenged Cromwell's boss, Manchester, to a duel and was locked up for his pains. All I'm saying is that Cromwell is already not a man to be messed with and when he knows his mind, he's not slow to voice it or indeed ask God what he would do in the situation and then do something about it. Manchester was the winner in this round of decision-making The Committee of Both Kingdoms now raised additional excise taxes to pay for his enhanced army. Their burden of taxation was now way heavier than it had been under Charles. There was groaning under a yoke that was not Norman, but was becoming normal. Two other armies were formed in addition to the Eastern Association, one under Manchester, one under Waller, and the other under Essex, ordered to work together in the Midland and West. Now Essex and Waller were not bosom pals. They did not get on. And Essex saw all of this as a demotion. Once he was the general, now he was a general. Nonetheless, people are still talking to each other, still pulling on the same rope. Essex, for example, after the news broke, magnanimously invited Manchester and Cromwell over to his London mansion for tea, and they went together to hear a famous preacher at a local church and then joined a feast together at the Merchant Tailors' Company. So, teeth gritting, but no biting. But there is another worm in the parliamentarian apple, and it is the tension that the alliance with the Scots is beginning to bring. Independency has both a political and religious side to it. Many like Vane and indeed Cromwell recognise the absolute need for Scottish military assistance and will support it, but they're not pleased at the price. They are uncomfortable with the political and religious uniformity inherent in the Scottish model of Presbyterianism. For the moment, they will do what is required, but it's interesting that Cromwell left the signing of the Solemn League and Covenant to the very last moment. 
back in the field, I have an Oliver anecdote for you, a run-in with Manchester's commander of foot, who happened to be a covenanted Scot, Lawrence Crawford. Crawford and Manchester were both very wary of religious independence, and they were seeking to root them out of the Eastern Association Army. And in February, Crawford duly arrested one of his men, one William Packer, on the grounds that he was an Anabaptist, a sectarian, as the Presbyterians would increasingly call them, a man of religious sects. Cromwell blew his top at the knees, and he wrote Crawford a letter which you might describe as being in the strongest possible terms. Say, but the man is an Anabaptist. Admit he be. Shall that render him incapable to serve the public? Sir, the state, in choosing men to serve them, take no notice of their opinions. If they be willing faithfully to serve them, that satisfies. Cromwell backed down. Manchester saw staff trouble and took an executive decision to run for the hills. Cromwell is a man of action getting the job done, is the thing. Weak counsels and weak actions undo all, he wrote to Oliver St. John. There is a small but emerging feeling among some that the price of the alliance with the Scottish Presbyterians may be too high a price to pay. And Manchester's hopes that he could weed out religious independence from the Eastern Association is dead. Under Cromwell's protection, it will become a haven for those who believe Protestants should be able to worship as their conscience dictated, and that will have later ramifications. Okay, to war. We are basically going north today, so let's head west first and get that done. And I'm sorry to say that in doing that, I'm going to take some major shortcuts. Very sorry. But it is a shame, in fact, because Charles does do a rather good job in this campaign. In the south, near Winchester, it was Ralph Hopton who launched a campaign but came up against his old mucker, Edward Waller, and they fought a battle at Cheddarton, which is normally cited as a decisive victory for Waller, and I guess it was, and it did help restore his reputation. Hopton's campaign was duly stopped, and he retreated to the West Country, but he retreated in good order, and Waller was too tired to pursue, although he captured Winchester, and a siege of Basing House was started. There will be more than one of those sieges of Basinghouse, by the way, a loyalty house, as it shall become known, and there's a very good book by Jesse Childs of that name, Loyalty House. The parliamentarian focus then moved to Oxford, which the committee of both kingdoms decided must now be besieged and taken, and Essex and Waller grumpily agreed to work together to do that. By this stage, then, most of Charles's resources were either way down in the southwest with Prince Morris, or were heading northwards with Prince Rupert. Charles was left with barely 9,000 to hold off Essex and Waller, who were now seeking to invest Oxford. The long and short is that Charles leads them a merry dance through the Cotswolds, effectively distracting them from their objectives, and seriously, the campaign map looks like a plate of spaghetti. Then in June, Essex decided he really must go to Lyme Regis in the southwest. I mean, it is nice, but busting the strategy for Lyme was not going to make many people happy and will require further and detailed explanation next episode. The net result was that Waller was left with an army little stronger than Charles's and in an inconclusive engagement at Cropperty Bridge in June, Charles gave him a bloody nose and although he left still holding the bridge, that was all he held. His London troops were mutinous. Waller wrote back to the Committee of Both Kingdoms that they sang their old song of home, home 
It's that recurring problem. Militias did not like being away from home. Waller himself was becoming tired. He was becoming fed up of the whole darned shooting match. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so the rest of the episode will now be set against the backdrop of the glories of the North. Now then, the thing you will have all been waiting for finally happens. Adventus Scottorum. And in early January, campaigning season or no campaigning season, since an army of 21,000 was impossible to maintain in one place for long, and the local Scots were complaining about the soldiers, the Scottish army crossed the border and invaded England. I know, again, Tusk. They were commanded once more by the thoroughly competent ex-field marshal of Gustavus Adolphus' Swedish army, Alistair Leslie, who I am now going to call Leven, on account of the fact that that is now his name. His general of horse, David Leslie, was almost equally talented, and though younger, again a veteran of the Continental Wars, the Scots were very, very confident that this would not take long. God was, after all, on their side. They had whipped the English twice in the Bishop's Wars. It's going to be over by Christmas. Their arrival, of course, transformed the strategic situation. Fairfax from Hull was now free to roam because Newcastle was going north to his eponymous city to face the threat of the Scots. Parliament took full advantage. Fairfax took an army of 5,000 westwards from Hull over to Cheshire, there to meet the Royalists and their own new friends, an army under Byron, composed of substantial numbers of troops from Ireland. English troops by and large, but from Ireland. At the Battle of Nantwich in January, Fairfax put Byron to flight. Just as Digby seems to keep messing things up, Byron seems to keep messing things up too and being beaten in battle. Is it just me? Anyone who wants to sing the praises of George Digby or John Byron, send me a postcard to the History of England, The Shed. Incidentally, the 1,500 English soldiers from Ireland under Byron were a bit confused about who they were fighting for now. So when Fairfax asked if they'd like to switch sides, most of them said, yeah, OK then, let's do that. Meanwhile, we have a new important name, capital I, capital N, that you need to remember or at least you don't really need to try very hard, because you'll hear it again plenty in the future. The name is John Lambert, a 25-year-old, rather impoverished member of the minor Yorkshire gentry from Kirby Mallam. He'd fought for Fairfax at Hull. Now he'd fought for him at Nantwich. He was a confident, aggressive soldier. So, Fairfax sent him off to have a hack at those west-riding towns that Newcastle had taken off them after the defeat at Aldbolton Moor and Lambert started duly taking them right back, Selby and Bradford, to begin with. In a little while, I say little while, depends on the scale you're using, he'll write England's only constitution. 
Meanwhile, Fairfax went to visit the Countess of Derby at Latham House to ask her very nicely if she'd please surrender the place. And she sent for the nasty little tick away with a refusal and a flea in his ear. Newcastle, of course, was most busy. He had an army of barely 10,000 against 21,000 Scots, and very confident Scots at that. And William Cavendish, Duke of Newcastle, posh and poetic though he might be, plays an absolute blinder. Newcastle refuses to give in, and through march and countermarch, and the defence of Newcastle itself, it has to be said, tied up a large contingent of Scots for the better part of eight months. Nonetheless, Leven has enough men to confidently move south, and Newcastle dances around him for four months around Durham, ably abetted and aided by a talented cavalry commander called Charles Lucas, destined to be Newcastle's future brother-in-law, did he but know it. Robert Bailey, one of the Scottish commissioners on the Committee of Both Kingdoms, found the lack of an immediate, crushing victory cheered on by the will of God, frankly embarrassing, and wondered what on earth God was doing with his chosen people. We are exceeding sad and ashamed that our army, so much talked of, has done as yet nothing at all. What can be the reason of it we cannot guess, only we think that God, to humble our pride, had not yet been pleased to assist them. Nonetheless, Newcastle knew, though without help, there was only one end in sight against such superiority in numbers. There is no doubt the Scots had transformed the strategic situation in a way that the Irish contingents would not do for the king. And so Newcastle wrote to Prince Rupert, If your highness do not please to come hither, and that very soon too, the great game of your uncle's will be endangered, if not lost. Prince Rupert, meanwhile, had been playing a blinder all of his own. Let me take you to the East Midlands, where the Royalist fortress of Newark in Nottinghamshire was a fulcrum on which the Royalist strategic position turned. If it fell, Royalist West and South West would be split from the North, especially now that Fairfax had seized Cheshire. And by March, Newark was listening to the sound of sweet lips along with the commander of the Parliamentary Army of 7,000 under John Meldrum. Sweet Lips was not, in fact, Major Houlihan, if you get the reference to an old 70s comedy. It was a mighty cannon that threw a 32-pound ball against the walls of Newark. Rupert was at Shrewsbury by the Welsh borders, and on hearing of the threat he moved, taking almost no artillery so as to move like an angry wind, sweeping up soldiers from garrisons in the storm as he went. Meldrum heard he was coming, but Rupert was on him days before he should have been, sold him a dummy by swinging round to advance from the south rather than the west, as by all rights he should have done, and on the 21st of March, 1644, appeared at the top of a hill overlooking Meldrum's army. He should, of course, have waited for the rest of his foot soldiers, but instead thought, hang it all, boy, let's just have a hack. Okay, said boy. So, sending smaller cavalry contingents to take strategic points and bridges, he charges. Meldrum panics, of course he does, tries to withdraw, and found the bridges duly held against him by those flying cavalry groups. At this point, his men mutinied because they were trapped, and that was that. There was nothing for it but for Meldrum to surrender, which he did, and he and his men were allowed to march away. 
without 3,000 muskets, 11 guns, and presumably their sweet lips, because they'd be feeling bitter, I'd imagine. It is as pretty a campaign and victory as any in the civil wars. But there was no rest for the wicked. Events in the north had moved on. Parliament and the Scots had finally closed the trap and forced Newcastle back into York. Now York was a tricky place to besiege. There were three and a half miles of wall, there were marshy land all around, and two rivers to deal with. With the Scots and Fairfax outside, Newcastle was still sitting pretty, able to get supplies in and out. What was needed here was Manchester's Eastern Association. It seems that Manchester was already entering his torpid phase. He had recorded a signal victory by taking Lincoln, fair's fair, but he then took an awful lot of persuading to get his bottom out of neutral. So already the Venetian ambassador back in London reported, whether from reluctance to go from the eastern counties or a lack of course, he has always shown himself very slow in carrying out orders. But he probably wrote it in an Italian accent, to be fair. By the end of May 1644, though, Manchester was convinced, and by the 3rd of June, the Grande Armée du Nord of 27,000 men was assembled around York, tighter than a gnat's arse, with pontoon bridges across the River Ouse stopping supplies getting in. Hard though it was to capture, York was now doomed. The Ministry of All Talents, Leven, Fairfax, Manchester, surrounded the city. Cromwell's horse were watching the passes to the west to prevent a royalist relief force linking up with Newcastle's army, which all agreed would be a bad thing with all the panoply of capital letters. Now, back at Shrewsbury with his two little army, Rupert received a letter. I'm not going to lie to you, there has been ink spilled over this letter, and tears as well, probably. Rupert kept it with him for the rest of his life close by to use as evidence because he suspected a stitch-up. The letter was from Charles, but it seems it might have been written for him by George Digby, so no wonder it was a bugger's muddle. I shall esteem my crown little less, unless supported by your sudden march to me and a miraculous conquest in the south, before the effects of their northern power can be found here. But if York be relieved, and you beat the rebels' army of both kingdoms which are before it, then, but otherwise not, I may possibly make a shift upon the defensive to spin out time until you come to assist. So what does that mean, then? Do you want me to come down south and do the miraculous conquest gig, or do you want me to go north? And if I do go north, do I relieve York, or am I, am I required to beat the rebels' army as well? No wonder Rupert get the thing. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. As we will see, Rupert interprets the letter within his own idiom. His response is sui generis. Taking his tiddly army of 7,000, Rupert proceeds to play another blinder. It was angry wind time again. North from Shrewsbury, he stormed Stockport on the Mersey on the 25th of May, where the garrison fell over themselves in panic to run away, and off they legged to Manchester. Always a good idea. Joined by a Stanley, still around after all these centuries since Bosworth, James Stanley, the Earl of Derby, Rupert was now up to 12,000 men, and the next stop was Latham House and the Countess of Derby, who received him with every honour, since he wasn't, you know, a tick and a rebel. 
But Rupert couldn't stop, because those rebels won't chase themselves, you know, and so chase them he did, into Bolton Helterskelter, where, with no pause for negotiation, he attacked. Victory followed quickly, equally quickly, by a sacking, probably the worst in the English bit of the civil wars, but at 1,600 dead, including civilians. As we have heard, the Earl of Derby would be executed in Bolton as a result. George Goring, a dissolute but talented cavalry commander, joined Rupert with 6,000 horse and this thing was beginning to look on. Thence, to take the port of Liverpool, north to Preston to make sure its north end will be ready for footer in a few hundred years' time, and Lancashire is turning blue again. Back in London, the Committee of Both Kingdoms were laying eggs, sending letters to the commanders around York to send someone to deal with that scary prince and his devil dog. Oof. Leven, Fairfax, Manchester did no such thing. They were staying right where they were, thank you very much, to stop Rupert linking up with Newcastle's men trapped inside York. And anyway, they had 27,000 men. Look at them all. Everything's cool. Rupert, though, was on fire. Now, he still had the much smaller army, but he had already decided that his uncle's letter was, in fact, ordering him to deliver it all, to both relieve York and defeat the rebel army. But he was only 14,000 to the Allies' 27. That was a problem. However much my morale trumps your numbers stuff. When it comes down to it, knowing you're half the size will probably stuff your morale anyway. So he needed Newcastle's men from inside York to be outside with him in any battle. So now Rupert played a clever trick. On the 28th of June 1644, the Allies had withdrawn much of their army from the siege works, taking up position near Longmaston, confidently expecting to see Rupert's army advancing towards them from the northwest along the Knaresborough Road. So, that's what Rupert decided to give them, and he sent a strong contingent of cavalry down said Knaresborough Road towards York. The Allied mongoose watched the approaching snake very carefully, eyes narrowed, ready to strike. While most of the snake was, in fact, looping around to the north, getting to the east of the Allies, in between the Allies and York, and triumphantly sent news to Newcastle to join them as fast as they could, while the remaining Allied army on the siege works ran away and abandoned their positions. York was relieved. Objective one, relieve York, sir. Yes, sir. Meanwhile then, on the 1st of July, a little bit shamefaced, the Allies were manoeuvring. A bit horrified by the neat trick played on them, Leven, Manchester, Fairfax, consulted, had a chat, decided a strategic withdrawal might be in order, and on the 2nd of July started to do just that, towards Tadcaster to await reinforcements expected in just a few days from the south. Rupert, however, had his own plans. Newcastle had duly got in touch, said, well, he thought the Allies were moving out and retreating anyway, but he'd come as soon as he could. So, Rupert, for whom attack was always the best form of attack, and who's ever heard of defence, set off to do just that. And at dawn on the 2nd of July, he moved towards Longmaston, probably expecting to meet a retreating, disorganised army. But he didn't, as it happens. The Allies had heard where he was, and how many men he had, and they turned around again, and many were beginning to gather back on their rise overlooking Marston Lane. This was unfortunate for Rupert. He'd expected some Allied confusion to help him over the hump of the disparity in numbers, and it was not to be. Never mind, he told Boy, it's all part of life's rich tapestry. 
<laughs> okay. Meanwhile, on the parliamentary side, I do not know what the Scots, who had already reached Tadcaster six miles away for their billets, and were now told to turn around and come back to Longmaston, said, rich tapestry? Probably weren't the words, but I could be wrong. Lions and donkeys may have come up. Most of the 2nd of July, then, was spent forming up. Newcastle took his own sweet time to bring his men out of the city, and he only brought 3,000, which was irritating, but his brave infantry white coats were amongst them. Rupert at the time was interrogating captured troopers from the Eastern Association, and according to Antonia Fraser, Cromwell was now famous enough to have come to his attention, and in fact, the nickname of Cromwell's horse, the Ironsides, is attributed to Rupert. Is Cromwell there? he asked the troopers. Oh yes, said the trooper. The trooper was released, returned to his lines to tell the tale to his boss, at which story Cromwell was supposed to have looked at the camera with his best Richard Harris accent and said, By God's grace, we shall have fighting enough. No one else repeats this story and it has all the smell of a new sheet about it, but come on, of course it happened. Over the course of the 2nd of July, these huge armies formed up, well, huge by English standards, never middling for continental standards, but probably the largest battle fought on British soil. It competes with Towton, I think, in the Wars of the Roses, which is estimated rather vaguely at mm, 50 to 60,000 men-ish. Marston had about 46,000. Here's the setup then. Pens and whiteboard at the ready. The Royalist army were on the edge of the moor, set behind ditches in landscape with multiple hedges that musketeers could use for cover, standing to the ready should the Allies attack. The Allies, meanwhile, were on a ridge with a better view of what's going on. Many of them stood in wet fields of rye, comprehensively trampled by the finish of all this. I imagine the poor old farmer holding his head in his hands. It's not clear why Rupert didn't attack as the Allies formed up, but probably the late arrival of Newcastle is the answer to that. Well, the two armies finally completed their military ablutions. Rupert commanded the right wing. Opposite him on the Allied left was Cromwell with his Ironsides. Newcastle was at the Royalist centre with most of his infantry, facing Manchester's Eastern Association, with Charles Lucas and Goring on the Royalist left, facing Fairfax with his cavalry. Leven, as the most experienced general, had overall command of the Allies. The armies were quite close to each other, 250 yards apart, maybe no more. The Royalists, with forlorn hopes and dragoons in ditches, the army behind them. They would be difficult to get at, given the work done by those lovers of Edward II's example, hedges and ditches. The scene would have been a riot of colour, banners and flags and different coloured uniforms, white and orange sashes for Parliament, lots of guns. The Allies' 75 guns were yelling, covering the battlefield with thick smoke, which drifted over the Royalist army, obscuring their view. Didn't do much damage, apparently, is the consensus. Probably more damage came from the mouths of the Scots and the English Puritan soldiers singing their metrical psalms, unnerving to hear such unison, such conviction, such belief in the providence that would guide them. And, well, it began to get late, to be honest. I mean, it's July, so it won't get dark for quite a while yet but by four o'clock it was getting past tea time and no one likes having a barney after a cucumber sarnie. At this point, Rupert decided to stop playing a blinder and start playing a blunder instead. He and Newcastle had a chat. 
Newcastle claims he was all for going at it right now, but Rupert said, nah, it's too late in the day. There'll be no action today. Zoe ordered a general stand down, and he himself set down upon the earth at meat. Newcastle slipped off to his coach for a crafty smoke. The tired cavalry dismounted and laid upon the ground. Dragoons climbed out of ditches. I assume that most musketeers put their matches out to preserve them. Tomorrow would be soon enough. Except they were facing an experienced field marshal in Leven, so relaxing army, unprepared. Only 250 yards away? Hmm. Five hours or more of daylight? Lots of smoke obscuring the forest view? Again? Hmm. OK, boys, up and at them. Leven ordered a general advance. Above them the heavens opened and the rain came down and thousands of pikemen and thousands of musketeers came down from the ridge at as fast a run as they could manage and the hooves of thousands of horses made a thunder of the earth. The royalist soldiers scrambled in a panic to recover as their enemy appeared out of the black smoke ahead of them. Our army made such a noise with shot and clamour of shouts that we lost our ears and the smoke of powder was so thick we saw no light but what preceded us. Thus Simon Ash, looking back on the day. Battle was joined. On the Allied left there came an iconic first as Ironside met the cream of royalist cavalry, the unbeaten Prince Rupert's win, commanded by, wait for it, John Byron. The forlorn hope had not yet recovered in time, so Cromwell was on the royalist wing without the interference they would normally have expected. But then Rupert was there. Somehow he'd lost control of his hound, who'd slipped his leash. But there was no time to worry about that. As he passed some of his men fleeing after the shock of that first impact, Rupert cried out, Do you run? Follow me! And he charged. Ahead of him, Cromwell had been injured and so had to leave the battle for a while before returning to the fight wrote Leonard Watson, Cromwell's division had a hard pull of it, for they were charged by Rupert's bravest men, both in front and flank. They stood at sword's point a pretty while, hacking at one another. But at last, it so pleased God, he broke through them. The unthinkable had happened. The Ironsides had broken Rupert's finest. Rupert himself was forced to flee for his life, and by repute was forced to take refuge in a bean field. There is a most amusing woodcut to that effect. I mean, it's a woodcut with the artistic talents of a two-year-old on speed, but it is fun. It is on the website. This was not Cromwell's triumph alone, of course. It seems Byron wasn't prepared and may have charged at the wrong time, and critically right behind the Ironsides came David Leslie's Scots. Now, the Scottish horse famously were mounted on hardier but much smaller ponies, and therefore at a disadvantage in a straight fight. It may well have been Leslie made the difference here, though, as well as the quality of the Ironsides. While some of the parliamentarian horse gleefully chased the royalists back to the beanfield and city, Crawford, Cromwell and Leslie managed to haul in many of their troopers and now surveyed the scene to decide how best to use the advantage they had won. Elsewhere, things were going better for the royalists. In fact, things were looking most encouraging, most encouraging indeed for the royalists. On the left-hand side of the centre, Newcastle's white coats had been together for a long time now and they were solid and were advancing, pushing back the pikemen in front of them. 
Arthur Trevor remembered the panic rout that ensued on the parliamentarian side. In the fire, smoke and confusion of that day, the runaways on both sides were so many, so breathless, so speechless, so full of fears that I should not have taken them for men. A shoal of Scots crying, Wales, we are all undone! And anon I met a ragged troop reduced to four and a cornet, and by and by with a little foot officer with hat, band sword, or indeed anything but feet. At that moment, Charles Lucas arrived with royalist cavalry to attack the right-hand side of the Allied centre, and men ran. Because Fairfax's cavalry charge on the right had not gone to plan, according to Thomas, it started tricky. The winds and ditches which we were to pass over before we could get to the enemy put us in great disorder. A win, by the way, is a thorn bush. I shall use that word from now on. If the forlorn hope, of course, had not stood down and abandoned those ditches, there'd have been an even greater disorder. Looking at the royalist cavalry ahead of them, Fairfax would remember later, We were necessitated to charge them. We were a long time engaged with them, but at last we routed that part of their wing. Unfortunately, trouble was on the way, in the form of Lord George Goring and Charles Lucas, whose countercharge then hit Fairfax's cavalry hard and put them to flight. Fairfax's men bolted. True to form, many of Goring's men chased them and got into the baggage train and were no more use. Does anyone else think of white frilly bloomers when there's any talk of looting the baggage train? I do not know why. That is always the image that comes to my mind. Send psychological analyses, care of the shed, plus a stamped addressed envelope. Charles Lucas, a talented and hard-minded royalist cavalry commander, was made of sterner stuff and was not attracted by frilly bloomers. Well, he might have been, but in different circumstances, you understand. Anyway, so they reformed and they turned on the parliamentary infantry. Many fled at that point and the battle started to turn for the king. One of those that fled for it was the commander, Lord Leven. He rode and rode and rode and would not stop until he reached Leeds, 30 miles away. It is true to say you don't want to miss those bargains at Brigade. Anyway, the day was lost, he thought. Time to plan for another day for the return match when God would surely deliver vengeance. One brigade, though, stood firm. The Scottish brigade of Lord Lindsay and Viscount Maitland stood bristling with pikes against three charges of Lucas's cavalry and they would not yield. Fairfax was with his second-in-command, John Lambert, as all this happened, surveying the carnage and the wreckage of their hopes. Disaster stared them in the face. Both wore white flashes in their hats as a field sign for Parliament, but they ripped them off now and then they set off all the way through the Royalist army, all the way around the back, the fear of recognition at every step. And so it was they arrived in front of Cromwell, Leslie and Crawford, just in time. After a quick exchange of pleasantries, a plan was formed. Crawford's contingent duly started to attack the Royalist infantry on the flank ahead of them, rolling them up as they tried and failed to wheel, attacked now from the front by the Eastern Association foot and the flank by Crawford. They began to break. Cromwell, and I assume David Leslie, took their cavalry and retraced Fairfax and Lambeth's path all the way round behind the Royalist army to the rear of the Royalist left wing and smack into the rear of Lucas and Goring's cavalry. The tide had turned again. This time, there would be no turning back. Prince Rupert's army 
was broken, shattered, streaming from the field in groups of vulnerable men now to be cut down as they ran, defenceless in their panic and visceral search for safety and unlikely salvation, chased by men, fired with the bloodlust of relief. Except for one band, Newcastle's white coats, still they stood. The astrologer William Lyley received a letter from a Colonel Camby much later about this. They would have no quarter, but fought it out till there were not thirty of them living, whose hap it was to be beaten down upon the ground as troopers came near them, though they could not rise for their wounds, yet were so desperate to get either pike or sword or piece of them, and to gore the troopers' horses as they came over them. I never met such brave, resolute fellows, nor whom I pitied so much. As dark fell, half past nine now, and the moon appeared through the clouds, a soldier looked at the ground, strewn with their lambswool white coats, and reflected. They had brought their own winding sheets with them. The Battle of Marston Moor was over. King Charles had lost the North. That's it for this week, folks. A shattering defeat in the North, a no-score draw in the South so far this year. Next time we will hear about the fallout from Marston Moor and find out what happens in the South. Surely, after such a heavy defeat, Charles's cause is lost. Quick message for members before I go. Members, please let me stress the benefit of the Members app. You really should use it. It's the very best way to see all the Shedcasts that are available to you, split up by series, so you can see what we've got. So you can see the wood for trees. There are so many Shedcasts now. So please go to the Members homepage, thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash members. If you are not a member, why not consider the idea? You can see the glories that await you at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become hyphen a member that's it alice done good luck everyone happy 2024 and see you all next week Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.